This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, are my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Adam, Adrian, and Doug. Say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. What is up, you bunch of ungrateful little yuppie larva? <laughs> oh, hey, what's up, all you wonderful little mini stay puffs? Ooh, I can just eat you all up. You're all so nice. See, I love that, that give and take. You got one who's putting you down. Was that That's negging? Is that what I've heard of? I, I think it's called good buster, bad buster. There we go. I think it's called virtue signaling. <laughs> and, oh, my God. Adrian, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, I know. Hello, everybody. I'm sorry that I can't talk about the coolest things like Adam and Doug, but it's Adrian. Hey. We love you. So, gang, Adrian seems to feel let down, uh, just like the majority of audiences when Ghostbusters 2 came out, a movie that I actually very much enjoy, even though its derivative is all hell. What's your one sentence gun to your head? What do you think of the movie? Or, ah, not a gun. Proton neutrino one, neutrono one to your head. There we go. There we go. You know, um, this movie is I want to say it's the Evil Dead 2 of the franchise. It's the same movie with a bigger budget, a mm-hmm. lot more cartoony in a lot of senses. And uh I don't know. I feel it gets a lot more hate than it deserves. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a fun time. I think people need to revisit it. Uh it's it's a fun watch. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, uh, you know, us millennials, we grew up on this film because this was probably the one that most of us had in our collection. So that's why we have such a bukkake obsession with all this slime blowing. Um, but this is a perfect example of, uh, oh, no, well, I didn't finish my homework. All right. Just, oh, let me copy your homework. Etch what I have on the first one and make it your own. <laughs> make it look a little different. Yeah. I don't know. How do I top bukkake at this point? Um <laughs> Uh, no, I don't know why no one seems to like this. And even I was reading your comments on the chat the other day. I'm like, but I like that part. So yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I do. I don't find anything wrong with this one. And I still don't. So I find it harmless. Like it, it doesn't bastardize the original. So what do you expect? You make a sequel because you want more of the same. So it's fine. Like, sure, I'd love something more provocative or weird. Like we'll talk about the original draft of the script. But the fact that you got anything is like a gift, right? The fact that it's not just terrible is a win, in my opinion. But I think at that point, because it wasn't the first one. Like, you should hear these morose motherfuckers talk about this movie. It only made $200 million. I just, I don't know where we went wrong. I'm like, only? What the fuck? Seriously. It's like what movies that aren't Marvel pictures are making now and calling success. Yeah, like 30 years later. Well, here's the problem, too. Like with Ghostbusters 2, it could have been so much worse. It could have been so much different. Honestly, like this is one of the sequels that I'm like, ah, you know, it's 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 a fun counterpiece to the first one. I honestly, in my opinion, I think one of the best sequels ever made to a movie is Short Circuit 2. That's something where you completely change it from the original and make it its own thing. And And confirm. Yeah, I'm strong on that belief. Yeah, you're correct. Uh, undoubtedly so they could have done something like that for this one but you know they had to play it safe because it's a huge you know more so than short circuit this had a toy line everything lined up so they really had to play it safe so can you blame them no because essentially this is just the first film skeleton where they just kind of tacked on new skin it's mad libs right Mm -hmm. just like you said you had an ongoing cartoon series you had merchandise you had pre-sale i mean the everything was in the works you can't deviate you are like because certainly like there 
is a lot of evidence that the cartoon show after this movie did try and come back. You can see that like they redesigned Janine. They did a few things like that. You know, Lewis is a ghostbuster at that point. But by and large, that's hugely after the fact. You can't then go, hey, uh, your next two years of content and all of your character designs and all of, all of it's gone for one movie. It just doesn't work. I mean, we should be grateful that it's the same writers, the same director, yeah. because you never have that with with sequels. And because of that, I think that's what keeps the characters and everything continuous. And and yes, they, they have changed a little bit, like especially with Egon, because he's more happy in this one. Right. And he smiles more and he has more little quips and jokes, I feel like, than he's a little more playful in this one. But and then, of course, Janine's like totally smoking hot in this one. Oof. So there's a little changes with them, right? But uh, we should be grateful that it's the same team and the same actors, except for Bill Atherton. I mean, everyone else came back. Like, when do you have that for a sequel? It's interesting because they got everyone back. And again, same writing team and director. But it just has such a different feel to it. Like, it feels like a different director's vision in so many senses, but still feels cohesive in a way. But I keep comparing it to a comic book because it's mm. it's more stylized, poppier with color, but it's also got a lot of darker bits to it. Have you ever heard of Rashomon? A famous film, even an improv game is based on it, so maybe Second City is what brought it to my mind. But yeah, it's basically, it's a, a film that's told from each character's perspective, right? So it's mm. the same events, but from a different perspective. And one of the things that's crazy is you have the same people, the same writers, the same director, but everything else is different. Cinematographer is different. ILM does this stuff. Everything is yep. different. So it's almost like just putting it through a different lens. And that's one of the things that's kind of frustrating with the story similarities we'll get into. But can we talk about how we even get to a movie five years later? Untracked obligation. There we go. So <laughs> this is really interesting to me, and I might get lost in the weeds. But there's this guy, David Putnam. He becomes the head of Columbia Pictures, right? And he's very provocative. He wants to make art films. and He wants to be like the guy. And you know what happens to people who do that? They get fired in almost in exactly one year. So he ends up becoming the CEO in summer of 86. And he finds out that he's fired in the media in October of 87. Funny thing, at the time, Columbia was owned by Coca-Cola. And it was a film company to do this thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's kind of a revolutionary concept. It's called Make Money. And so he decides to slight Bill Murray publicly and just pop off to try and prevent this from happening because this was the success of Frank Price, his predecessor. So he does all this shit to try and fuck it up. And as soon as he's gone, they're like, hey, let's get everybody back at the table and let's have a little powwow. Isn't that rad? Well, I mean, I, that's a nice way of putting it, I'm sure, because I know Bill Murray wasn't having it for this one. <laughs> Putnam had criticized Michael Ovitz and CAA for basically doing the thing where you have the entire team being a package deal from an agent. You have the writer, the director, you know, a guy like Harold Ramis, who's starring in and writing Dan Aykroyd starring in and writing. So you have everything done. So if you think about the negotiating power you have on that side of the table when you're making the entire movie, right? And so he'd done all this stuff and they bring them together and they start you know, going through. And what's super fascinating is the timetable with which we're recording this. Bill Murray just popped off at the mouth at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival and was like, yeah, I did this movie under, and I quote, 
false pretenses. Anybody else read that article? About the new one or Ghostbusters 2? Ghostbusters 2. So he says, oh. yeah, they basically, and this is confirmed, everybody's talked about it. Ovitz gets everybody together at this restaurant called Jimmy's in LA. And it's like there's fucking Ghostbusters memorabilia. And they sit there for four hours just having a good time. And Murray's like, they conned me because I like those guys. I like the people. I like the people we're working with. And they sell me this movie that is not the movie we made. And he, per Ooh. his view, they were already filming and then everything changed. But if you look into literally everybody else, like Dan Aykroyd, everything was changing very rapidly from the beginning because while the original film went for 13 months of filming and reshoots, this film started filming in November of 88 and finished in March of 89, which is not much when you think about everything they had to do. That's lightning fast compared to the original. I mean, in just how fluid the first one was, they had the time to go with those changes, but this one... That many changes, that many effect shots in that little time, it's nuts. I think they had, what, 180 effect shots in this one? It was originally slated to be like 130 and ILM signed on. And then by the end of it, it was over 190 before they called and they were like, look, we're having to cut stuff. We're changing everything. Mm -hmm. And that's why you get certain shots. We'll get into it. There's so much yeah. to do. This, is, this mm -hmm. is probably even more of a, like a bloated episode because the production is the curse here. For what, like, compare this to Justice League, for Christ's sake. This is not a doomed production. It's just rushed and people have an expectation. You know, the first one wasn't expected to be shit. The first one was expected to be Ghost Minority Report. And then you get to the movie and you're like, oh, this is a nice surprise. Whereas this one, you're like, oh, this better be at least X amount of good or I'm going to be a sassy bitch. Yeah, well, I mean, you could have got a Return of the Living Dead Part 2-ish type film for this one where they just kind of, you know what I mean? So I, I'm grateful for what we have. I mean, this is, I really like Ghostbusters too. It's on a spoiler alert. I like it. Yeah, I'm exactly in vote. Made on I've a, never been mad at it. It's harmless. That's the thing. If you don't like it, don't watch it. But it doesn't do anything to impugn the dignity of the rest of it. It's not like you find out that they stole the ghostbusting technology and they're all sycophantic frauds. Nope. They're just doing another adventure. Mm -hmm. It's not 2016. Here's a question. Has anybody ever been like, you know, um, Rocky 2 is a little too derivative of Rocky 1, <laughs> given that he fights the exact same guy and he's the same guy and he's in the same area and he does the same training. Nobody ever gives that movie shit. Never. Fuck off that mm -mm. here, Sylvester. It's a much easier topic to talk about Ghostbusters too, because honestly, uh, last week's episode, I was kind of nervous to talk about Ghostbusters because yeah. what are you going to say that hasn't been talked before? And then, you know, Ghostbusters, at least the original one, has a iceberg effect of fans. You got the top, you got the middle, and then you get that really, see, I'm, and I've, I've met some people at a convention that were like the really bottom. If you say one thing wrong or like one phrase that is, that is not exactly right. You'll end up in the incel basement, and then they'll say, "I'm going to rape your virgin ass." Now, What'd don't you make say about my Cyclotron boy? About oh my god! Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, I'm like, oh, I better be a better be step on eggshells. No pun intended. Uh, ah. You know, with Ghostbusters. Ah. So shot on a budget of thirty to forty million. Isn't that fun? We talked about this last time, where it's like you can just lose five million in accounting. This movie's like ten million in accounting. Who gives a shit? Granted, there's a lot spent in reshoots and production and everything, so I could totally understand the ambiguity of it. Gross is $215.4 million worldwide. Not $300 million, but still fairly good. I mean, you're talking about five times your money back. 
I'm happy with it. Well, and this one also good. went up against uh, Batman, too. I remember Batman was the big killer for this. It was originally going to be the same weekend until they pushed it up, which I'm sure ILM just fucking loved when they were finishing the special effects, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably why you get some of these deleted scenes, which I wish uh, the deleted scenes are great, and that would explain so much, like like the scene where Lewis is chasing Slimer throughout. I'm like, yeah. like why? Why didn't we get that? Because they didn't finish the effects, that's why. And what's interesting there as well is you lose some of the story. Like, sure, you're losing some effects and whatever, but that builds his relationship with Janine. She mm-hmm. sees him. And that kind of, when there's a payoff there, when she's zipping up his suit, they're both about to bust. They're going to ghost bust. <laughs> yeah, Janine is just uh, uh, totally uh, ripped from the cartoon, and she's over-sexualized, too, which, hey, you know, hey, another strong female character. She's the one... That is performing the life affirming uh, situations. <laughs> and also, I want like, people to bear this in mind. So, as Doug said, we had Batman come out the next week, the same weekend as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, also starring Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. Sorry, I was going to say his character name, and I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> and then you had the next weekend, after that weekend at Bernie's, Lethal Weapon 2, UHF, Turner and Hooch, Friday the 13th, Part 8, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, The Abyss. There is so much content coming out here. It was a big year for sequels. Exactly. And it's a big year for kids' movies. You had movies like Little Monsters, which is like you know, a little darker on that side. And what mm. do you think of this? Reitman has said that the the zeitgeist of the like culture in the '90s was changed by the darkness of Batman, and that people wanted to become cynical. And like the the happy and uplifting element of Ghostbusters Two was somewhat dismissed. I, at first, I saw that and I was like, "Get the fuck out of here!" And then I read it again. I was like, "You know, that actually kind of does make sense with the whole Jackie Wilson thing." And I could see somebody who you know, we're not quite to Nirvana, but we're on on the way there. With the grunge, do you see those people being happy with the higher and higher song? I see it. I mean, the slime liked it. <laughs> so the statue. Yeah. If anything, like I will get to it, but this movie makes you feel very patriotic. I could see that for sure. <laughs> see, I disagree though. I feel like it's kind of uh, like highlighting all of the darkness that people do have. Like, I don't think it's necessarily that happy because they're basically saying that everybody in New York City is just a miserable fuck, and that you know, that's the reason why they can't get into the museum at the end. And then the police are worthless. And well, I mean, yeah, uh, the police are worthless. They can't do anything. So who they have to rely on these supernatural ghostbuster people. Right. So I I don't necessarily know, like it is kind of chipper in a way, but I don't agree that it's, it's very happy. It kind of shows that people are not happy at this time, especially in cities. I mean, I'm sure that I, I don't remember it was 89. I was like a baby, so I don't remember. But, you know, Reagan was president, right? So, well, yeah. imagine that mood slime now with all the anti-mask uh, Karens in New York and, and, and Kumo. And, <laughs> oh, that would be like pure negative did energy. You, did you just say Kumo? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> another another drink like a little. <laughs> get it. Um, Cheers. I think think that's very wrong i think like just looking at children's content look at the first ghostbusters film that was still pretty much a kid's film and everyone was smoking and drinking that movie was it it just even the color palette was so bleak i mean there was a lot of darkness before batman i mean just even the cartoons kids cartoons back then were depressing i i don't see blaming it on batman as being something valid and that's not just coming as a Batman fan. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, I think that he, that's the easiest terms that he's couching it, like the lowest common denominator. The, the greatest one to one comparison is the movie that comes out a week later. But when you think about like 
the, the elements going into it. The fact is, the first one doesn't push any kind of agenda of positivity, right? Mm-mm. Which has a, a quaintness to it, maybe. And I think Very that kind so. of subverts it because it's it's largely regurgitation of the first, and then it ends with this kind of quaint, cute, uh, almost conventional ending. Where I think that that is something where you're seeing, you know, the six pack abs of Michael Keaton, jet black, this onyx sex god. And then you see this, I think there's a certain, it becomes across as like hokey versus that seems like that's the cutting edge now. Ghostbusters was the cutting edge before. So I don't necessarily think that it's a huge commentary, but it also, Batman doesn't end with a song and dance number. Yeah, it, it has one midway. I mean, which is delightful. Yeah, I admit that. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Party man. Oh, always slabs. <laughs> you got to love Prince. Now, 108 minutes. This movie does tend to feel a little bloated to me by comparison to the first, but still not an abomination. Mm-mm. We mentioned this in the chat before, but I feel like the scenes with Dana and Bill Murray, those are the ones that go on a little too long because there's the jokes don't hit as good as the first one. And it's yeah. just... Uh, it's. It, I feel like he wanted to wear that petty. He looks like he does in Groundhog Day, but I feel like he wanted to wear that more in uh, this film because he can get away with it. He's like, I, I, I'm not going to wear this coat. I'm not going to film this scene. He sleeps in that fucking coat. Do you see that? Yeah, it's very self-indulgent. And that's one of the things, mm-hmm. you know, he, he actually openly talked about, and it was really interesting at the length with which he went to in talking about like how jokes were dispersed in this film. I actually have a quote. The first one, I ended up with all the lines, so that was pretty sweet. They just kept giving them to me. I don't think they realized what a big hit the movie was going to be. But in this one, people are taking their lines and taking more, too. Like, that just comes across from this pace. Like, it sounds almost petty. And it's like, but you're, you're excluding yourself. Like, you weren't in the writer's room. You didn't do these things. And it's not their fault that you also failed after Razor's Edge. So I could totally see why Bill Murray didn't want to come back to this. You know, he feels like the first one he didn't make any money and he so he got a huge amount of credit for. And then in this one, it's much, much more dispersed. And basically like his he's kind of subjugated to being Dana's plus one, in my opinion. Honestly, my favorite character is Janos. Peter McNichol like completely steals this film. Like and this is like Janos yep. the movie. I'd watch an entire series based on him. Mm. Yeah, Peter McNichol's great. He's the best character in Ally McBeal, too. Like, he always plays a quirky, strange little man, and he does it so well. And just the expressions, he's very expressive, too. So he's definitely uh, the scene stealer in this one, more so than this, in my opinion. Yeah, and then sidestepping, too. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I've always tried to get, I don't know if they're still in production, but um, these little mystery figure boxes they made for Ghostbusters 2. They had they had a Janos one, and they had the Scolari brothers. And they always, they always sold them at Barnes & Noble, and I've always been trying to get my hands on them. But it, you know what I mean? It's like 10 bucks for a mystery box, Eesh, and all I want tough. is the Scolari brothers, and I want Janos. That's all I want. You're better off going on eBay, finding someone who's bought a bunch of them, opened them up, and is selling them specifically at this point, kind of thing but then you know does it lose that Ooh, i got it feeling you know no yeah. it's 10 bucks more for a <laughs> company at burns and Nobles. <laughs> i yeah, actually kind of really want a janush flashlight that scene with the glowing eyes is one of the coolest things i've ever seen and it's so minimal that scared me as a kid did anyone else me get too. scared by that me too and that's that's the thing there's so much 
more uh, brightness to this film, but things are undoubtedly darker in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, it's funny. They, they yeah. made this like a, they watered it. They say they watered it down for a kid's film, but there's scenes in here that I remember like, like the fucking bathtub that tries to eat the baby. I oh mean, my God. Yeah. The, severed the blob, heads on sticks. Yeah. Severed heads on sticks. The blob remake came out in 88. This came out a year later. So it's like, you know, people are still envisioning that the fucking blob, it tries to eat the baby. And here's my, uh, for you Patreon viewers, I'm showing you some video. I've had this VHS tape since I was four years old. This was a birthday wow. gift. And I still it. It, it's crusting a little bit, but uh, yeah, so this movie means a lot to me. Like I said, That's it's not, not as good time. as Ghostbusters, but you know, it's something. Well, even the Scolari brothers are are really scary. They used to scare me a lot as a kid. The way they pop out of nowhere. I mean, that's a really great scene to open up with with them in the in the in the courtroom because you're not really expecting these terrifying ghosts who I was reading were like modeled after the Blues Brothers, which I found mm -hmm. you know adorable. So that was really cute. But another homage. Like, yeah, they're really creepy. Like their faces, like Slimer is like happy and fun, and even the 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 nasty uh, taxi cab driver that Jake was referencing in the last um, episode and, and part one, even he's kind of fun. Like these don't really feel very fun to me. They seem like they're very malicious. So. I, I was scared of them. These are very yeah. evil ghosts. The Scolari brothers, they dragged that lawyer lady out. Yeah. You know, that's the first yeah. time you see like a ghost dragging someone out. And uh, I don't like, I, what I love about this one is that the slime like builds the negative energy from that room or that area. So I don't, I feel like the ghosts are more evil in this film. You know where I think the Scolari brothers would fit in? What other movie? They're very reminiscent of the creatures from House. Yes. Yes. Very right. much so in the design and like because it's it's garishly cartoonish. It, uh, yeah. Or the exactly. monster from Army of Darkness. But very this much is, so. Inarguably, the Scalari brothers is the best ghost busting you see in mm -hmm. either of the films or the, yep. the 2016 film. For that no. matter. The, the cinematic masterpiece that is 2016, as uh, Adam would obviously concede. Patreon bonus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. 2016 one. They don't. They don't trap the ghosts, um, but that's another story. I won't yeah. get into it. But what I will say is they modeled the, um, I think the, the, the video game, the one that came out from Atari, which is, you know, basically Ghostbusters three. I think they modeled that ghost busting dynamic in the game after the Scolari brothers, because they're capturing the ghosts, wearing them down, then slamming them against the walls. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what you do in the game. The game just feels right, but we'll save that. Yeah, we we'll will. save that. We got, we got game talk coming. The best of mm -hmm. the best. Now, Ivan Reitman comes back to direct. He gets a cameo as a pedestrian. The future director of Ghostbusters Afterlife gets to say that his dad says they're full of shit. That is Jason Reitman. The little girl with the puppy is his daughter. I have to ask mm -hmm. you a question. Do you think that the birthday scene is parodied in TMNT when you have Mikey to the music of one Billy Talent being boffer weaponed by a bunch of children dressed up as a ninja turtle at Cowabunga Carl, if I'm not mistaken. Oh my God. I forgot about that. Shared cinematic universe. I think this is just a parody on the, on the yeah. toy line. Uh, Cause they're like, Oh, the kids are man. Like he's not he man. <laughs> All right. And that was like such a meta joke just with like the toys and the cartoons battling it out on like shelves and like 
TVs back then. I mean, they were neck and neck. That's starting to go into like the trauma self-aware territory. Cause honestly, yeah. like I'm sure even Ivan Reitman was like, well, you know, we're, we're, they're asking us to make the sequel. So let's do it. Yeah. I wish they kind of went in the gremlins two route. Yes. That would have been funny. But uh, you know, this one, it's like, uh, yeah, let's just make this where we're completely self-aware that it's its own like cartoon and its own universe and it's popular. So let's just make the sequel and, you know, throw a little uh, tongue in cheek jokes in there about the film itself. And I mean, it, mm-hmm. in other Reitman works, he almost he acknowledges the phenomenon do 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 that was Ghostbusters. Like even the kid in uh, Kindergarten Cop has Ghostbusters sheets. You you see a lot of this kind of referential elements in his later works without doing like a Kevin Smith and be like, hey, remember that joke I did twenty years ago? <laughs> Same joke, but worse. And let's make an hour and 30 minute awful garbage piece of movie on that one joke that's expired already. Yeah. (laughs) Written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. The original title of the original draft was Ghostbusters The Seed. Uh, This was actually referred to openly in Starlog Magazine number 140, where Murray said it's not going to be called Ghostbusters 2. We'll burn in hell if we call it Ghostbusters 2. I've suggested the last of the Ghostbusters to make sure we won't be anything like Ghostbusters 3. So uh, he was already swearing off something else happening. But, you know, Aykroyd acknowledged it was way, quote unquote, too far out there. Some versions have Dana being kidnapped. Others have another female who doesn't have a name, also a single mother, being whisked off to Scotland and being Mm -hmm. caught in a fairy ring. Uh, Subterranean tube system. It's basically uh, Troll Hunters by Guillermo del Toro. But I digress would you like to see that maybe a comic book version sound good i dig that even even just seeing breakdowns like if they do like kind of animatics of it i I would enjoy seeing seeing what they had there (laughs) i think from the 2021 perspective we've seen so many just like carbon copy remakes at this point or sequels or remakes having something that's be completely off the wall i'm actually very accepting of yeah I got to say, just reading the real Ghostbusters comic books and everything and seeing how much those like bridge the movies to the cartoon in this weird, quaint way, I feel like a lot of those ideas did end up getting used in just like the comic that I'm reading now. I could see that being an unused thing from the script. It's, It's interesting how they're all woven together, like the game, the cartoon, the movies, and just it's interesting. Well, here's one thing I'll say about the Ghostbusters 2 film is that um, besides the first one, you don't see who Gozer is. This one, you have that impending doom because you see that painting of Vigo. And that's fucking scary because you know he's going to come out later in the film. And I I think Vigo is a a great villain. They kill him off too easily, in my opinion. But he's he's, he's impending. And uh, that, that's kind of scary, especially compared to the Scaleri brothers. I mean, you think about that, like that is a climactic scene. That is like you feel like it's uplifting, it's powerful, it's perseverance, it's the enduring spirit and it's dynamic. And then the, you know, it's some goop on a Nazi's son. Uh, true story. We'll get into it. Don't worry. We'll sizzle for what's coming. 1999, <laughs> Aykroyd had made another movie, Ghostbusters 3, Hellbent, 122-page script that would have been set in Manhattan and would have featured a character named Lou Siffler, who was basically a Donald Trump industrialist. Um, (laughs) At the time, I think it doesn't do well. But after 2016, I think that has a lot of potential. Yeah. (laughs) Give that to me. That's that's a joke in itself there. (laughs) I I have have a fact for Adam, who just took a puff of marijuana. 
Uh, as as somebody who imbibes marijuana, I I believe that you're contractually obligated to have at least one Tool album. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, there's several in the house. I mean, you've seen the poster above my TV. My wife's a huge fan, so yeah. so Adam Jones, the guitarist for Tool, did makeup effects for this film. No way, he did. There that is go. awesome. Oh, wow, that's how much research your boy did. Yeah, I, always <laughs> proud. Always proud. Proud of myself, to be honest with you. He also you did uh, stuff for Jurassic Park and T2. So I mean, it wasn't just a one and none. Excellent. Oh, yeah. So we already briefly mentioned ILM. I have to get into Stephen Dane. Remember how he was he was credited incorrectly in the first one? Yeah. He was uncredited in this one and did more work, arguably. Yay. Yay. Did he get like, paid? It's sure. so not fair. Okay. Well, at least he got paid. I don't think he got I mean, residuals, though, for every fucking proton pack that kids purchased at Kmart. <laughs> But yeah, I'm sorry, but the proton pack is up there with the Millennium Falcon and that guy. Oh, just out of principle alone. And the thing is, if he's not getting paid for it now, how old is he now? Because I can imagine he's going there with his grandkid. He's going to like Barnes and Noble and he finds like the proton pack toys. He's like, so I created this. He's like, sure, dad, you're just getting uh, <laughs> you're senile going into Alzheimer's. <laughs> Let's get you home. He's like. I created a slime blower. And they're like, Grandpa, that's gross. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about what you did with Grandma back in the day. And he's like, if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't exist, Billy. There's some uh, repurposed stuff from Blade Runner 1982, for which I have a tattoo. Just making sure you were all aware that I did. And uh, moving on to... The actors and the actresses. Shall we do that again? Because I think I have even more stuff than I had the first time. Let's hit it. Go for it. Murray comes back, passive-aggressive. Got it. Bingo. Boom. Dan mm -hmm. Aykroyd. There is a scene I'm very upset didn't happen. It was a deleted scene where he gets possessed by Vigo, and he almost crashes the Ecto-1 and kills everyone. He is saved by Winston. Now, question. Yes. Did you have the coloring book? No. <laughs> coloring book contained that scene in illustration oh that's great for that, children <laughs> oh oh yeah it, it's bizarre as fuck because like licensing or whatever none of the ghostbusters could look like any of the actors like ray had a mustache that in a fro that might have been book. Uh, is, referenced in casper when he has a mustache inexplicably oh ooh, but yeah like even five-year-old me was like what the fuck is up with this who's but, yeah, this honky prick was... <laughs> but uh yeah it was in the coloring book I'm into it. But yeah, Winston, A, Winston gets to save the day. And then B, when he gets possessed later, it's a greater payoff because you're, it's basically Chekhov's gun. There's already a thing with him and Vigo. Boom. Vigosity. It's funny because that was part of this montage. And I mean, just like how much of a reflection it is with the first one. That whole ghost blowjob scene from the first one was a cut much longer sequence as well. Yes. Crazy. Mm -hmm. And this is a dynamic action-packed thing where if you're trying to make a blockbuster, you need good set pieces. I mean, they had to mm -hmm. punch up the other stuff. The ghost train was added. The severed heads was added. There's a bunch of stuff that's added in reshoots because it wasn't exciting enough because so much of it was the boring relationship with Bill Murray and, and Dana or Sigourney Weaver, which we'll get to Sigourney because she is very, very smart lady. Mm -hmm. Sigourney. In the original August 1988 draft, it was a different woman uh, named Lane Walker. Then they bring Dana back. And I think this is this is AIDS experience with the show. Are you ready? 
Adrian, I would like you to adorn your face in the smuggest sense of self-satisfaction that you've ever been able to contemplate. Quote, to me, it's like being put in a class with the most awful boys who spent all their time throwing spitballs and dipping your pigtails in the inkwell. It's the masochism in me. I mean, I love them, but it really is like boys town. She also referred to herself <laughs> as Margaret Dumont. Do you know who that is? No. She's the poor woman who played like the dowager in all of the Marx Brothers stuff who basically Groucho just destroyed over and over and roasted the shit out of. And she took it with a smile because she had to be there and anchor and, and rein them in. So you're that this is you, right? This is you. I'm a dowager now. <laughs> no, you're Sigourney who likened okay, herself God. unto this. I still okay. don't know what a dowager is. Oh, honey, that's not how you say it. <laughs> There's no. It's I'm a, gonna use my same joke. Big words. Like, what is this? PBS. That's like me with the kids. Just look it up. You have Google. Bye. <laughs> I'm done. But I mean, what do you think? She's, you know, she makes fun of herself in her old poem for not being funny, and then she's like, "Oh yeah, I basically Aww. got to be like the hall monitor for this movie." And I believe that. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, I feel her pain, one. And two, I think that's really cute. And, and the fact that they give her a baby in this one. So she basically is, you know, figuratively and literally the mother of the movie in this one. And that's why I like to see her and Bill Murray together. But I got, I read a little bit about how Bill Murray interacts with the baby. Because I guess back then they tried to have all these movies where that show like more like a sympathetic picture and, and more of a um, a picture of men being nurturing and, Three men you know, and a baby. taking care. Yeah. So also, but at the same time, those tropes were also taking away from the mothers because basically the mothers saying the mothers are are absent from the picture and that they don't really do much. So the fathers are better in these cases. Yep. And if you look at Hook, they were talking about Hook and Honey I Shrunk the Kids. And like the mothers are all working and they're doing whatever. And it's like, well, maybe not in Hook so much, but and this one as well, like the mothers are working mothers. So the fathers get to stay home and, you know, and take care of them. The moms are gone and blah, blah, blah. So whatever. Anyways, I'm just went on the whole tangent. Sorry. That's a good point, though, because <laughs> she is a working professional. She has yeah. a distinguished career. She's, you know, unapologetic about it. There is a nanny and she's not suffering. She doesn't need mm -hmm. Bill. You know, a lot of depictions of divorcees with children is basically like especially at that time you should be so lucky to get a man who abuses you should be so lucky you you're untouchable and then here she's mm -hmm. like he's working to earn her affections which i think is a very unique story. i can't think of another film where you see especially at least at that time where you have a man seeking a divorcee who has a kid uh, in that kind of way well, I can't think of another film that where where, where Bill Murray calls a baby ugly. He's like, eh, this baby's ugly. Was, was yeah. his father ugly too? So I will say, because one of the twins killed himself, I will not yeah. say how ugly I find these babies to be, uh, but I will say that I do find them ugly. Oh, my wife said the oh same gosh. thing. But back to the whole Dana thing, Dana being such a cool character, it's like she was a, an orchestral cellist in the first one, and it's like now in her downtime when she had a baby and needed a side job, she's in art restoration. It's like, how badass is she? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's that's pretty good, and she's doing a good job because, you know, Janos, the first person he goes to work, he's like, you're doing a very, very bad job. I want you to know this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible.
remind me that I have a meme idea for this exact profession of hers. But we'll move on. Uh, I think it's a great time to bring in uh, Peter McNichol as Yanush Poha, who allegedly got his accent from one Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice. Mm, never saw it. <laughs> You've never seen Sophie's Choice? <laughs> I've not. I, I, I take it you're familiar. Oh, my God. Sally <laughs> yeah, Fields at her best. <laughs> so uh, he was actually on Johnny Carson. And he got to do an interview and he has this, he is very much playing the audience. He, I think that has a very, very tongue in cheek performance and he makes fun of himself and has sardonic quips such as my performance is clearly a sign of someone who had too much time by themselves. And he jokes it like there was everybody <laughs> else. And then he was like standing watching them. Um, he claimed to have made a flag for Carpathia, an anthem for Carpathia. Yeah. The flag depicted a snake stepping on someone. I really want to know how a snake does that. And yeah. then he had a specific <laughs> count of being hosed six times. Uh, yeah, and you got to give it to Peter McNichol. Have you ever slipped and fell on hard marble? That fucking hurts. So, you know, I give it to Janos. Yeah, the best character in this film by far. Yeah, can confirm, man. Marble is unforgiving. But yeah, he had a smile on his face every time when he was uh, dripping with goo. Why has you came? <laughs> a lot of people don't give credit to the scene where he shows up during the blackout. He's she's laying some fucking game. He's going to try and do uh, use his slime blower, if you will. And she's just like, what? So oh, good. But I would. Oh, but I would. But the thing is, like, he's he's funny, but he's also scary at the same yes. time. Because I remember he was fucking like it's scared. Like his performance is great. I think he's the one that's having the most fun with with all yeah. the the stuff because he's the newer character in the film. All the mm -hmm. other characters yeah. are occurring except him. He's having the most fun with this, and I, I absolutely love Janos. I, I wish they made a movie just about Janos. I'd love to see him. It's like, oh, I'm making coffee, and uh, oh, it's not working. But I would if I put more caffeine on here. Yeah. Oh well, and also he's dressed as a nanny, like Rita Repulsa, fucking like flying through the <laughs> sky on a bicycle. But he's terrifying. That's a great scene and a great depiction of something. Well, That's let me let me let me tell you something real quick. Have you ever seen that Ghostbusters two board game? They made one for one and two. Um, Janos Nanny is is drawn in anime. Just Google it. Ghostbusters two board game. It's great. Like I want to get my hands on it. It's forty bucks, but I think I've seen it at Target. But Janos is the scariest character on that cover. Yeah, uh, Ghost Janos. I gotta check that out. <laughs> I gotta say though, like as as kitschy and campy as this gets, this never goes like full on cartoonish. No. It still feels somewhat real. It's a bit more upbeat through a more colorful lens, but never again, it like just doesn't feel cartoonish. Well, what's so interesting about this one is uh, opposed to the first one, the first one shot like a horror film, like, you mm -hmm. know, that scene with the librarian going down in the basement. But this one's much brighter set. And I think that's what gives it that, that weird aspect because it's shot as a comedy, but it but it's it's more dark than the first one. If that makes sense. I don't know. Maybe I'm just crazy, but it is. It's it's a more abstract balance to the lightness and darkness, I feel. So it gives you that weird teeter-totter effect, whereas the first one, you know it's more horror with some comedy elements, where this one's shot like a comedy, and it's it's weird balancing that. Like, I've never, like, uh, I can't think of a film, big budget, that, that comes across this way, because it there's some scary scenes in this. It, it's a fun house. It's really a fun house. You know, you're going along. Oh, it's colorful. It's fun. And then there's something that's just so jarring, like the fucking heads on the pikes. My parents brought me to see that as a five year old in the theater. Saw that scene, lost my shit, ran screaming out. 
Yes. No. And you want to know one scene that gave me a nightmare too? Like I, I and, and I bought the 4K for this review um, about the podcast. But the thing is, Vigo does this. It's like two seconds. Vigo does this weird smirk wink towards Dana, mm. like in the. And I think I'm like, man, that is fucking creepy. That it looks like a deep shit. fake. And yeah. it's so creepy. So do you want to talk about Norbert Gruppe? Oh, what? You thought his name was Wilhelm von Homburg? No, that is not true. That is a name that he adorned himself with because he and his father were briefly professional wrestlers and he used that name for his American boxing license. This guy fucking sucks. Yeah, I heard that was a stage name and that he was a total fucking monster. Fucking sucks. Yeah. So um, I, I went way deep with research, so I'm going to time myself. I'm only going to give this piece of shit two minutes. But what a great life. In, you remember an interview with the vampire or whatever the movie is where it's Max Shrek and he's like, oh, I'm actually a vampire. You're like, oh, my God, the shadow of a vampire. That's what that's what that's what this is. Yep, he's yep. fucking terrifying. So his dad was a Nazi, but not really a Nazi. He was a baker mm. who was forced to be a Nazi. And so there's that. His granddad used to eat two pounds of raw bacon uncooked at a time. Crazy. His dad was in Young Frankenstein, I'll have you know. Pro wrestler. They used to wrestle together as the Vikings. This guy was a boxer and tried to like make himself German Muhammad Ali, but also terrifyingly like poor sport. Huge into drugs, prostitution. They actually, in a documentary made about him, there's a pimp who talks about how you wouldn't want to be friends with this guy and how he's a total piece of shit. And while doing the interview about this guy who he's saying is a piece of shit, he punches a homeless man then keeps going through with the interview. It's crazy. This guy fucking sucked. He made fun of the industry. The industry is the problem because he said in an industry that was ruled by Jews, it was really dumb to call myself Von Homburg. What? The Jews uh, are the problem? Uh, you psychotic uh, piece of shit. I uh, never knew his mother, which isn't his fault, but maybe some of his issues of inadequacy. He used to sit in her garden and watch her, hoping that they could speak and she would never speak to him. Terrifying. This was the fact that he didn't chop off dicks with his teeth is crazy to me. We keep going. There's so many things. A Werner Herzog called him the German Mike Tyson because they worked together on a film. He was a goon in Die Hard. Uh, he, uh, oh, Michael C. Gross. Melt the madness. Yeah. Michael C. Gross was a producer on this film who called him a crude, bigoted asshole. He apparently raped his stepmom, and there was a lot of thought that his uh, sister was actually his daughter until his dad was in a coma after having a stroke, and he mocked her and said, what do you care about that asshole for, implying that he was her father, and then they did a blood test and found out that it wasn't. And then, because she was so like, no, fuck this dude, you're a piece of shit, just like Jake saying, you're a piece of shit, I'm not telling you the dad died, and he gets pissed off that she doesn't tell him that the guy he just called an asshole on his deathbed died. So when he died, he had somebody deliver a letter to her a month after his death that said one word. Touche. What a piece of shit. So he really is Vigo the Butch. Dude, there's so much I didn't even get into. But I, I, like I said, I had to limit myself because there are documentaries about how big of a piece of shit this guy is. And he flipped. The you know what? You know what? You're getting one more minute. It's Ghostbusters month. This is my uh, I, this is my little my goon coupon. Go another minute on this. So he was fucking insane, right? Like the the level of stuff. 
he was really upset that they dubbed over his voice. Max von Sydow did the voice. He did it in one day. Apparently, this guy legendary. He storms out of the the screening and gets irate that they dub it over. Have you ever heard his voice? You can find it on YouTube. Yes, I did, and it, it's it's kind of cringy. And like, I'm glad they went with Max von Sydow. You know, they'd rather go with Exorcist uh, preacher than the, than what they had on. It was kind of cringy. Yeah, he's a mush mouth man. Total mush mouth. <laughs> well, he was. That's chronic traumatic encephalopathy or whatever his nose had been broken many times and so it, it sounds very nasally and slurred his german wasn't as bad as in english but this guy was repeatedly in, in a bunch of stuff like rawhide and gun smoke and all sorts of stuff and he was always like some kind of a goon and he kind of lived the gimmick in a lot of ways uh one of the things that was really interesting though according to an author patricia nell warren he was a closeted bisexual and uh, he so some of his repressive and more awful tendencies and excluding himself a lot of people have tried to paint with a brush since his death especially in response to an article about him was like oh well he was distancing himself from people because during an aids epidemic when you're oh you know a bisexual you certainly have these issues and people tried to characterize it as or you could see him characterizing the jew thing versus the aids thing you could see those kind of issues uh there's a lot of analysis there but uh, it, there's some great articles about him. There's some great analysis. I've watched a bunch of footage of his acting and his interviews. One of the interviews, he stares into the soul of the interviewer. He got knocked out the night before. And he's just like, he won't answer his questions. And the interviewer is like losing his mind, like answer my questions. And he just stares at him. It's gross. Yeah, that motherfucker was fucking just terrifying. I mean, we had every right to have nightmares about this man after seeing this as kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially after you're telling that story, it's like, Jesus Christ, like, like, would you want this guy around your baby? Like, seriously, like, yeah. he was the stuff of nightmares. Vigo is very scary. And like I said, I'll, I'll bring that up again. But just the omnipresence of, of you seeing the main villain from the beginning of the film to the end, I think just makes a little more impact than Gozer, where she just kind of shows up at the end. I don't know. That's just me. But but Vigo was that 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 painting will forever. Like I, I'd even be afraid to have it posted on my wall here because you see you could buy prints of Vigo. Yeah. And I love how Peter McGregor's like, you can buy Vigo portraits in the gift shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking worth it. I think a great room would have the, the Kramer on one side and the Vigo on the other side, and they'd just be dueling and, and doing a staring contest for all of eternity. Now, okay. that painting is a photo that they have hanging at ILM, I believe. Like, is it just me, or does it not even capture how ugly of a fuck he actually was? So he, I mean, I watched a lot of interview footage and stuff with him. And I watch, especially when he's speaking German, he has a certain light about him. If he's on a topic that he's prepared to talk about and it's something that he's comfortable with. But like, if you get him on a topic of like one of his boxing losses. So at one point he fought a guy and he was disqualified for a, an alleged headbutt. And he starts screaming about how it wasn't a headbutt. It was rigged. It was fake 30 years later. Uh, so, Sounds familiar to what's going on today. Yeah, hmm. I mean, it, <laughs> he has this clearly has issues of inadequacy, but by all accounts, his father, Richard, was not this evil guy. Uh, you know, there are copious amounts of people like, you know, their daughter, the, his sister, Richard's daughter, Rona. She moved to, to California to live with this guy because she loved she moved her whole life from Germany. Uh, people loved him. He was a fitness fanatic. He would you know save stray dogs. At one point, he had like 15 stray dogs he lived with. Because he was just like this nurturing soul. 
So you question where some of this inadequacy comes from, and a lot of it's tethered to the mother. And so a lot of people have tried to portray this guy as this kind of afflicted person. But you know, you can't condemn. But when it gets to stuff of sexual assault, there's no excuse there. That is that's condemnation. So when it comes and to, did, did you say his daughter's name was Rona? Yeah. <laughs> this is a rhythm of the so night. This was the true coming of 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 a uh, Vigo. <laughs> yeah, Vigo yeah. did take over. <laughs> Oh my god. <gasps> oh, oh, and if you notice their number is JL5 2020 on the side of the Ecto 1A in this one. Woo! Eat that up, QAnon. Which in one scene is Ecto 2, one scene. Ah. Mm. Mm. Kurt Fuller mm-hmm. plays the second most evil person in this, but by all accounts is a very nice guy who was in a play that Harold Ramis's wife saw 8 times. Yeah, Kurt, Kurt Fuller, he kind of played the same character in a lot of these 80s movies. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think he's as as, as menacing as Walter Peck. Um, yeah, no Atherton by any means. Now, yeah, he's but... no, he's just kind of doing his job. He's just kind of like that wormy bookworm. But I wish they kept that deleted scene where he gets sucked into the slime and his shoes pop out. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That would have been fun. That's too bad. Well, the whole thing ends up being a reshoot. The scene in the mayor's office and luckily get Ben Stein. But uh, oh, yeah. Kurt Fuller, one of the things that is hard with him is he doesn't have any cut to him. Atherton, like you feel like, I mean, he might be a dickless and he might be like a weasel, but he's a conniving weasel. This guy is just like spineless and awful. Um, mm-hmm. Often he's credited as being one of the most like transparent ripoffs of the first with the institutionalization compared to the imprisonment. I don't mind the institutionalization because I like that you get to see Brian Doyle Murray with Bill and the yeah. whole therapy scene but it is a pretty heavy-handed one-to-one comparison right it's peck light it, it is yeah peck light that's the, that's like the switch light version but i i think this does have one of the funnier comments from bill murray like when they're all talking about like the the slime and they're like oh we made a toaster dance he's like what do you think about this he's like i think they're completely nuts yep. i know <laughs> that's so funny which you know that I don't know why they were like if they had just played it like Bill Murray, they probably would have gotten out, right? Because they're like, oh, we're just joking. We didn't mean to, so let us go. But it's so cute that they all get captured and they're in their little onesies. Ernie Hudson has the red one on. I just love it. I'm like, oh, I love that he has the red one on, and the rest of them have the white ones on. Like it's so cute. Anyway, what I'd love to say is that this one definitely has more camaraderie yeah. uh, than the first one. Like you definitely feel like they're more of a team. Uh, Winston mm-hmm. has a lot more to do with it. And uh, I, I have in my notes here that he does jump around in this film uh, a lot from time to time, especially the, uh, I want to talk about the courtroom scene. I know we yeah. have to get into, but that scene is shot like a 1950s film. Like if you turn it in black and white, like just look at the cuts and the, the spikes the wind, and the yeah. transitions. I think that's one of the funny, the funniest scenes and the best scenes in Ghostbusters 2 is the court scene. That's mm-hmm. the best part of the whole movie. I completely agree. I think the busting, Definitely. I also think the buildup too. Uh, the judge does a tremendous job. Well, I mean, Jake, you, you should know from example here, what would happen if, uh, you know, Bill Murray, like, like Lewis, uh, he, he's the lawyer. He's like, I got my law degree in night school. He's like, that's okay, Lewis. We were arrested at night. <laughs> um, and then when Bill Murray's on the witness stand and he's just kind of like talking to Lewis, uh, I think that's hilarious. And, the, and then the lawyer's like, oh, you know, objection, your honor. He's like, the, the witness is leading the lawyer. He's like, come on, give me a break. Like we're both lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> well, Harris Eulin, the guy who plays Judge Wexler, uh, he does a great job because uh, the God complex you see a lot of 
you know, judges will abuse their discretion to a large extent because they really to question them is so hard to do to have I mean, it be known that you have raised any kind of allegations of impropriety. It's huge. And so he's fucking bulletproof and he knows it. And this like he has his determination already and he's just trying to get there. And it's all a waste of his time. He does a really good job. I will say that that's a much more complex uh, representation. I think a lot of people get credit for yeah, and, and that's the only judge I've ever seen where he's like, I'll have you burned at the stake. Yeah. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> just when that, that whole scene where just the wind picks up and you see his face and that pink light just illuminates him, it's it's so good. Ah, yeah. uh, man, why can't more Judge Judy episodes be like that? I love that sound. Uh, Jim yeah, Fye yeah. actually played Tony Scaleri, the jogger, and the Statue of Liberty. The Scaleri brothers were allegedly based off of some kids who robbed Harold Ramis's dad's shop and assaulted him. But then there was also like actual Scaleri brothers who were arrested. I think it was Pittsburgh. But um, yeah, you know, I was just impressed that I found that criminal history of people who may or may not have existed. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I love the Scolari brothers. I think they're better than Slimer, in my opinion. Like I said, they're they're actually mean spirits. Yeah, they yeah. like that lady out of yeah. the court. And uh, man, there just has to be more figures for them because yeah, the Scolari brothers. I think it makes Ghostbusters one and two. Um, say they were scary at the time. They're goofy Muppet looking assholes, but but they, they are. are. <laughs> You know, they, they actually have names. It's uh, Tony and Nunzio. Tony is the skinnier one, and Nunzio is the big ogre kind of guy. But yeah, they are characters that don't get enough love when it comes to the figures. Like, those Weta Workshop ones that I got, that I just showed you guys in the chat, like, I would love to see them do the Scolari Brothers, because I think they are such underrated, just creature effects in a movie. And Nunzio, not to be confused with the pro wrestler from the Full-Blooded Italians stable Ooh. there you go um that's a reference one person got and didn't enjoy you know one thing one thing that we're we're hitting on now but we haven't hit it yet is uh i think that one of the funniest lines too from none of the ghostbusters the main cast is i think he was an alien at the holiday inn but i couldn't be sure oh wow oh my God, yes. you know who oh that is God. that's the mother from shameless <laughs> yeah oh that's fucking like that whole scene with the the world of psychic is hilarious like i'd love to see just a show on that too oh my god one of the things that drives me crazy about the world of psychic is the guy when he makes the prediction right and he's like oh the world of den blah blah we all get the joke but motherfuckers mm -hmm. on Reddit be like in movie details, be like, well, did you know that if the if the Ghostbusters hadn't intervened, it would have been the other Yes. That's the joke. It's not a detail. That's the joke. It's the punchline of a joke. Exactly. Well, Fucking people bricks. like to feel special, Jake. It's okay. Yeah, Just well. let them have their, their time in the sun or whatever. Yeah, burn them in the sun like Icarus, god damn it. <laughs> I mean, from a sales standpoint, you know, he wouldn't see, uh, you know, paperbacks for at least a year. So at least. <laughs> I know. I, Bill Murray's hilarious. Like when she's talking about how she followed the ghost back to his room, he like stares at the camera. <laughs> the look on his Total. face. Total fourth wall break. I love that. I'm like dying. Like that's so funny. I love funny. the fact that he doesn't have a catchphrase. He like points. That's so clever that he doesn't. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Leave it to the imagination. Layers. And you know he's not even thinking. He's doing like one alligator, two alligator. He's not fucking thinking of a catchphrase because he knows it's all bullshit. 
And everyone at home is like, I bet you he's saying this. Yeah. Oh, look, Bassmasters is up next. <laughs> Bassmasters, I know that show. But but in a whole, I, I know Ghostbusters 2 gets a lot of flack, but it's it, it's still charming. It's not as charming as the first one. Um, and one of the big differences, I still love the original sound, like the original score for the first film, like I love that ghosty, like kind of alien sound. The theremin. Yeah, this one you don't get. It. You get more of that actiony hero type sound. I'm not a big fan of it. I like the first sound a little bit more, but um, you know, this one still has its charm. I love Ghostbusters too. And it's branded content by this point. I mean, people were fighting to get their songs in. You had Danny Elfman, Elton John, Bobby Brown, who actually is part of his contract to get his song for the movie had to be in it. So he becomes the doorman. Uh, you might remember. So I mean, the, yep. a lot of the score that you do get is very condensed. I think Danny Elfman's score only gets four bars of the music, uh, which is how bloated it was in a lot of ways. Which the first one just didn't have that. Like it wasn't an established IP. People didn't give a shit. I'm not gonna give you my song that could make me, you know, more money on my own. Yeah, it was just definitely it was so much more a brand film at that point just like you said just the association with like coca-cola and everything it's that symbol just became one of the most well-known symbols in the world by that point so everyone wanted to be associated with it was instant success on paper anyways oh it was i don't know if you guys remember i remember having them at like the 7-elevens at me growing up but uh, they were the ghostbusters 2 card packs with like little stills from the movie and they had gum in there and i used to buy those all the time i had a bunch of those yeah, because this came out in 89, but they still, maybe they were a few years expired, but I still bought them at my 7 <laughs> Eleven. I was doing research on those, and like, there's a picture of Bill Murray on one of them, and he just looks fucking depressed to be yeah. there. It's awful. <laughs> well, here's the thing like, after watching it again, too, I feel like he purposely put in those, I'm going on a date with Dana scenes, so he doesn't have to get into the river of slime scenes. Uh, yeah. Probably didn't want to do that. But, yeah. Which is almost like a reference to the you know marshmallow at the end of the first one. He's the one who's barely got a, a, any of it in the quaff of his hair. Fun fact, talking about when they went in the uh, River of Slime and they come and see them on the date, Ray goes to point and flings slime onto uh, one of the patrons of the restaurant. The man she was there with was actually Peter Mosen, a uh, super fan of Ghostbusters, like was I- I- the first super fan for the film that helped with promotion of the first film. This one, they gave him a role in it. I, I just think that was uh, really cool to see back then. How much do you think you'd give to be oozed on by Dan Aykroyd? Oh, him yeah. or me? Both I at mean. the same time. <laughs> I'd buy that for Let, a dollar. Let's make it a production <laughs> line. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, it's you, you're Lucy, and he's Ethel, and it's like, how do I fit all of this slime from Dan Aykroyd onto me, <laughs> into oh me? God. Whatever. We're flu- we're fluid. Gender uh, fluid. Well, well, let me just interject for a second here. Um, so I bought, like I said, I bought this on 4K. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but there, there's one shot, and it's not in any other scene. Um, where Janine picks up the phone after they capture the Scalari brothers, and she's like, yes, we're back. She's wearing proton pack earrings. It's what? Like those, Is she really? What? Oh, my God. It's like little proton pack earrings. They look like those. Um, remember the shrinky dinks they used to make in like the, oh, the yeah. oven? That's yeah. Awesome. Oh, my God. Proton, cool or, or not that? proton packs. Um, they're the, the ghost trap earrings. That's what they are. Oh, are ghost uh, trap earrings. <laughs> you know, oh, I, I got to say, Oh, yeah. Get some of those. I support that purchase. (laughs) Uh, There were a couple shots in this uh, now that you're mentioning, just like seeing it in the 4K or just like updated Blu-ray quality. 
when Vigo's eyes change when they're in the uh the museum when Ray's scanning it, that effect something gets super grainy in the new updated footage that i've seen or uh, in the version i watched yeah it's probably just all that rotoscoping because because the one scene too later on too uh, at least on the 4k disc um when the mayor looks out the window and like the sky like i'm like man this looks really mad and like it looks drawn yep. out and it looks like they didn't they didn't crop the bottom so you could see like where it comes up a little bit <laughs> like ooh, this is a oof. I can't remember. I think it reminded me of like uh, Repo Man or something like that. Just the effects from that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's what it reminded me of too. Just that that haze. Well, I like that they just kind of, they kept adding layers to it, you know? And I think that it works really well to do visual layers with the audio layers because when things don't mesh, it kind of fucks with your brain a little bit. And so mm-hmm. that worked really well. One of the other proposals for the Vigo was that he would come out of it and then one was that he would peel out of it, kind of in like a two-dimensional peeling and then Ooh. rise up. Uh, but it would be animated as it moved. There were a few different things that were done. But I mean, I think that this is probably the best uh, quality with what they were doing. I think there were some ideas that were a little bit clev- more clever, but a little bit probably less good. I, I like what they did. If they did that whole peel thing, I could have seen it going Roger Rabbit real. Fast. That's exactly what I was thinking. Was was, was um the Doctor Doom from Roger Rabbit, like where he's flat and gets steamrolled. That's that was scary too. <laughs> Christopher Lloyd choose the scenery, like he terrifying. Um, now going through the narrative, so it starts off with the uh, five years later with the black uh you know title card at the front. Five years later, now the thing is Dana Barrett's car- pushing her baby and uh, it runs over this pink slime that comes out of the street and then next thing you know you get this cartoony uh, kind of scene where it's like you see uh, people running around with boards and then someone in a in, in crutches getting hit on uh knocked down and then just everyone angry at each other so typical cartoony uh new york i mean that's kind of how real new york is to be honest but yeah. you know that that's just like a cartoony sesame street version of it but i think the stakes are higher because you get that baby stroller that gets um, possessed and goes running down the street and you know into traffic that's a lot more threatening than just the library ghost from the first one yeah yeah higher stakes more danger right off the bat like darker there's the darkness no just uh, you know what i mean like if you're a parent just think about it. your baby stroller is getting pushed into the middle of new york traffic that's fucking scary shit later on after that too you, you dana barrett's going back and and there's a scene that's cut i wish it was still in here where dana um confronts uh egon um, just to, you know, they're not Ghostbusters anymore. They, they got, uh, you know, you got Dan Aykroyd and you got, uh, and you got Ernie Hudson, uh, going to children's birthday parties, dancing to the Ghostbusters theme song, which is now, which is now part of that cinematic universe. You know, this, this themes, they made a theme song of ghost. It exists. It's so meta. <laughs> it's so meta. And then you get Ivan Reitman's son saying, you guys are full of crap. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it, I wish they, I wish they went a different route for the sequel. Just saying, like, oh yeah, you know, now there's no ghost because Gozer's gone. So you know, we went out of business. But now it's just like, oh no, you faked everything. How the fuck do you fake a giant marshmallow man? But he, one of the things is like, how do you prove it? You know that it, in the modern day, everything is filmed. There's CCTV. There's cell phone cameras. Back in the day, it's my word versus yours in a lot of it. Yeah. Has anyone watched uh, the Watchmen series on HBO? I have not. If you've if you've read the book, it's it's the only other thing I count as canon. I'm like a Watchmen purist, but there's something that kind of plays into how the book ends and how it progresses forward in society. It's very interesting, but um, very akin to that. 
sort of situation. Yeah, because the deleted scene in this is where, um, you know, Dana goes in and, and talks to Egon and then she's like, oh, you know, why is this happening to me? And uh, easily just keep that scene in that explains so much because she was possessed by the terror dog and Gozer. So that's why she has a much more, you know, psychic kinetic bond with these ghosts here. And that's why V goes after her for her kid. But um, they cut that scene. It's like that would make so much more. And it works with Lewis as well. It and would you know, work with Lewis. Yeah. yeah. That would be like very Carol Ann with Poltergeist, you know? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck they cut that? I don't know. But I wasn't behind Ghostbusters 2. Um, but the, uh, so after that, they they go in and she's like, oh, you know, I want you guys to come and, you know, kind of explore this out for me, figure out what's going on. Why is my baby like being, you know, possessed by this stuff here? And uh, she's like, but don't bring Venkman in, which is weird because it's like Venkman and Dana, you know, that you thought they would have got together at the first film, which they did. But then they broke up and I guess she had a a baby with the guy that blows his uh, nose in the first film with that uh, nasal snort. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't ask her to marry him. And I like that they put that scene in. Yeah. Well, what, what did he say? He's like, every time I asked you to get married, you fell asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Like the he ball had and no, chain. You know, yeah. Yeah, I called her the ball and Shane. Like, and and this is, but this is, this is. You can see him doing that, and I would have gotten tired of his ass too. Like, yeah, you saved me, but you know, there's no commitment here. You're basically a man child, and you know, good for her. She got married. She got her baby. That douchebag's gone away, so now she can live her best life. Yay. Yeah, strong woman. She don't. She don't need no she man. She don't need no man. Exactly. I'm sorry, Dad. Continue. <laughs> But um, yeah, so so after all that, uh, she they go back to um, you see where these characters are five years later, and then you go to Raise Occult Books, and I think that's one of the coolest places too. Yeah. I mean, who, I would love to go to Raise Occult Books. So, you know, you just go there by a sage, and he's like, "Oh, my best of the coven." <laughs> yes, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Like, I want to age into that. I want to own an occult bookstore and just be a quirky old guy. That would be so fun. Yeah, no, I would love to, too. And then you get Bankman that kind of comes around and, uh, you know, they're all kind of like old buddies and they just hang out at their shop and stuff. But I just love how Ray is, uh, you know, besides all the effects of the first one here, he's just kind of doing his own thing. He has his own bookstore and he's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. I enjoy doing it. I want to smoke a pipe. Um, so they go and explore Dana's apartment after being tortured by, by Bankman uh, to, to figure out that they're working for Dana now. Um, and so they go in there and they, they do uh, some exploratory uh, tests on the baby. And one of the best jokes in here, too, she's like, you don't have anything in there that's going to hurt him, right? And they're like, no. And they pull out these big ass, uh, like these ice uh, clippers. <laughs> and they just put it up. <laughs> oh, man. But um, yeah, so they go and explore the baby. They're like, oh, nothing's up with the baby. We don't know what's going on. So after that, um, you know, Dana, we realize she has a job at the art museum, uh, do, mm-hmm. not doing paintings, but restorations. So she's doing some restorations, and then that's when almost we're like you restored to- the first movie with this movie. Uh, Speaking of which, little reflection, you know, uh, first one has a line about a Twinkie. This one has a line about a Slinky. Yeah, this one has a line about a Slinky and a <laughs> Jello mold. Have you ever seen the toy where it's Egon Slinky and it's just a flat piece of metal? It's the best. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we had a slinky, but but I straightened it. <laughs> My parents didn't believe in toys, says the guy who is a toy that millions of kids had worldwide. I love it. Because I feel like they were all aware that it was like, oh, you know, there's a cartoon in the toys. We got to make this film. And they were all just kind of like, ah, eh, uh, okay, whatever. 
yeah, there's there's little bits of them being in on the gags, like peppered throughout. There's little bits of meta gold, I feel. Well, I think that He-Man line perfectly sums it up. Like, it's like, oh, we're making a movie now after the cartoon's been out for a little bit. It's like, oh, now He-Man's the hot topic. Or now Power Rangers, you know? Yeah. You know? Actually, I know, I, th- I think at the time, 89, wasn't Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like the big thing at the time? Yep. Right well, there. That's the, yeah. And then the movie was 90, it. so. Yep. Yeah, so a year off, a few months. So after that, they uh, they end up going to, uh, you know, we're introduced to the art museum and uh, Janos with his, with his Vigo painting. And, you know, it is, it, man, I would be fucking terrified of that painting. I, I tell you what, that's, Vigo is one one crazy looking motherfucker. But um, yeah, so we, we're introduced to that. And then uh, after the introduction with Janos, um, we're, we're ended up going to, uh, you know, Bankman, and then um, the, there's there's some weird telekinetic powers underneath the city. So, you know, for them being broke, I don't understand how they got all that construction equipment. Yeah, and like they like rappel down into the thing. Yeah, Where yeah, and maybe Home Depot because I know you can rent. Uh, <laughs> but what are you going to say? Like, I need to rent uh, a jackhammer and some stuff because we're going to dig in the middle of uh, you know New York City you know, on a main street. <laughs> yeah, what aisle are the winches? And I really love Bill Murray in that scene. Like, what are you doing? Like, and then like trying to like work his way back from the light. I know. Come down here, shake my monkey tree. (laughs) He's like, where do you think this stuff's coming from? The sky? I truly think that's his best part of the whole movie. Like, I I don't want to like beat up on the guy, but I just, he is the worst part of this movie to me. And maybe that's why Egon became my favorite when I was a kid. Like, obviously, I think in my personality, I'm a little bit more. Um, I think I'm more of a Venkman than an Egon, unfortunately, but I think that he's just so non anything in this that it's kind of hard to root for Venkman. Well, this it's... is probably his most improv scene because the thing is, Venkman is just, um, I don't know, he just seems very like unenthusiastic and he's always wearing that fucking coat. I always think he smells like roast beef. Huh. Uh, you know, he's wearing that coat like he falls asleep <laughs> with that. I love it. Well, he's funny as the talk oh. show host, like he's funny there. You yeah. know, it's it's like I could see his apathy playing into the role if like by the end of the movie he got really into it, but it doesn't even come to that. So it's not like, I don't know. Yeah, it just falls flat, but still yeah. not unenjoyable for a guy who's all about acting. He has no emotional capacity in this movie, right? If you want to be like, a dramatic why? actor, like have an arc. Don't come out of it being the exact same guy who just like has a kid kind of now, you know? Like, it's just it, like why Ghostbusters was such a phenomenon. It's like when you embrace the sequel, like just go all out. Like you're getting a paycheck to act, fucking act. Well, Ramus had actually mentioned that element as well. That none of them had done a sequel at that time, despite being offered sequels, like for instance, Stripes and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. he was very. They were all very reluctant and kind of like looked down on it as almost being like kind of a tawdry thing. Uh, and a lot of the, I mean, they thought of themselves kind of as like artists. Like Ramus talked about how. You know, he wasn't the class clown. He would say that he wrote for the class clown and he was uh, mm-hmm. an absurdist and he I mean, very like intellectually perceiving like what they were doing. He, he said, uh, they say comedians are born from an absurd paradox. They can't reconcile as children. So like, obviously, these guys are, are crafting what they're doing. Um, and at that point, having not done a sequel, I could see some reluctance. Um, but what you get here it's it's frustrating in a lot of ways, but it's still like it's better than nothing. That's kind of what I have to keep telling myself. Well, yeah. when did Caddyshack two come out? Because I feel like Caddyshack two was a big thing for uh, like just realizing how bad sequels can be. Because I know Chevy Chase's big thing was like, oh yeah, when he saw the film, he's like, yeah, call me when you add the laugh track. Well, that actually was eighty eight. 
okay, so maybe that left a bad impression on some of these uh, some of these actors because man, that Caddyshack two is. Whew. Yeah. I don't think I saw that one. But then Bill Murray's not in that one. It was only uh, Dan Aykroyd's, Dan Aykroyd's in, that in that one. Yeah. So technically, yeah, he he's him, yeah, right? exactly. So he isn't in a sequel of his own work. He's just in another sequel. But, but still, dude, they yeah. probably saw that and they're like, "Ooh, what the fuck is this?" I'm like, I never watched. This. I wonder if there was some ego there too. Yeah, like with Bill being like, "You're taking my jam now." Like that's kind of weird. But then him not wanting to do it. Like I could imagine, you know, it's like. Just because you don't want to be around your ex anymore doesn't mean you want your friend fucking your ex, right? Like, that's kind of maybe that thing? Yeah. Yep. That is the most accurate description of the situation, I think. Yeah. So we'll go down more of the sleigh-by-play here. So I, I, I left off with, um, uh, they were digging into the city. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, the cops stop them and they tell them, like, oh, you know, what are you doing here? Like, oh, we're, we're from, the, uh, from the telephone company. We're digging here. You know, we, we've been working overtime. And, uh, you know, and one of the, uh, here's the thing. I've actually heard dialogue like this from actual construction workers. <laughs> doing, like, well, while you were going on a coffee break for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's Caltrans <laughs> in the nutshell. You know, they could be years working on the same hole on the highway. But I digress. That's for that's we'll save the 405 South jokes later. <laughs> um, California. My whole we life. We have the same problems here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I bet Florida has a lot of potholes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I four is a bitch. So, yay. Some potholes, too. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what is, the, what is that? Patreon exclusive humor, dude. I know what a weed pup looks like, dude. <laughs> a pothole where you stash the nub and then you light it on fire. Oh my god! <laughs> pothole would just be bath salts injecting the same vein in the hole, but or like the just... meth pock marks in the face where there's like no Excuse face me, anymore. That is Miami. That is not Orlando. That is Miami. So. Uh, well, Will Smith made Miami sound wonderful. Thank you. I know. He, that's that because he's just innocent, and that's the only Miami he knows. Big Willie lies. Oh, he's picking up, on, picking up on the pixie dust in Miami. We all <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> oh my god! I'm sorry, but Gloria Estefan is the queen of Miami, and she'll tell you that herself. So I'm sure she's not doing coke. <laughs> anyway, I don't know what we're talking about. Oh, continue. Dad. But I digress. So, so. <laughs> Basically, and we get into some scenes here. And like I said, I don't know if it's because I watched this movie over and over again as a kid, but the fucking river of slime scenes are are, are nightmare fuel. They mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd ends up being the guinea pig to go down the line and scoop up some goo from the river of slime, which is the old um, abandoned subway line. And uh, they end up picking it up. And while they're uh, while the phone company actually comes down with the police, they say, "Oh, you know, you idiot, what's going on? The phone lines are over there." And then he just slaps the guy. He's like, "You idiot! The phone lines are over on the other side." Um, now, so, yeah. quick, quick interjection. Um, I had no idea this was based on a real. Uh, transit system they say it's the old pneumatic transit system like in new york this was pre-subways and i guess new york actually had this it was uh the alfred beach pneumatic transit system i don't know it just seems very out of uh like gotham to me uh these places were like really ornate like that like well, they I... showed where the the tunnel of the slime was in it's i had no idea 
Isn't that where they get like the the alligators under the city type thing, right? Because they have all this shit underground that nobody goes into anymore. Yeah, like yeah. old abandoned subway lines. There's a lot of that. I know when I was living in Cleveland at the time, they had um that you could actually go in like during Halloween to to tour the old abandoned subway lines and they are fucking creepy. But I know like oh, uh, uh you know, a lot of cities have them, a lot of states have them too, so that they, they exist. So there may be a river of slime down there depending on how angry people are in the city. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> but what i can say here too is that, uh, oh <laughs> that's my urethra right there oh my god <laughs> but uh, uh from all the slime blowing so we got to make some cum shooting jokes um uh, so, so basically what happens is uh dan Aykroyd's getting pulled back up after you know egon and uh egon and bankman are getting arrested uh and and one little kick to an abandoned pipeline pulls out all the city from from all the power from the city so it makes this huge blackout all over new york city which that was the main fuse of new york if they had done that like in real life like how much trouble would they have been in and i don't know does anything happen to them i can't remember and i just watched this like dismissed later on yeah oh that's right because they go to court yeah okay (laughs) they save the day yeah, they do. I mean, and that's the thing, too, is that, like, all this stuff is under the ground. Um, I don't know why they didn't make a bigger case about it. Like, wouldn't that be a health hazard? Wouldn't the EPA be down there? Like, Bill Atherton should have been down there. Like, what the fuck's going on, you know? But, yeah, well, okay. why was all the power supported on this old pipeline that could easily be knocked out by one kick? <laughs> I know, and an area where supposedly nobody's been in and it's, like, closed off, so anyway. Yeah, yeah. All that negative energy. So, after that, uh, you see the city lights go out, and we end up in one of my favorite scenes in, in Ghostbusters 2 is the courtroom scene. And, like, I mentioned before this scene is filmed like a weird uh 1950s almost like um uh like a sam peckinpah type movie like just look at the swipes and the transitions or turn your tv to black and white this film just the comedy hits the most in this one and this also leads up to the best ghost busting scene um in in both movies in my opinion because you get the, the jokes just hit and hit and hit and then you also get bill murray hitting on the lawyer he's like listen here kitten you know what i mean it's just oh my god he's such an asshole judge in history yeah the judge is just whew. he's like all right i just don't believe in spook specters or ghosts so let's get this over with yeah that that judge had an axe to grind he reminded me of a three stooges judge like if you watch a disorder in the court yeah. that's what it reminded me of it was very like caricature-esque but again not cartoony animated but not cartoony no, he honestly, like, it's weird because, like I said, like, when I watched these movies as a kid, like, I kind of, he felt like, um, uh, who's the guy for the, the, from the cockroach segment in Creep Show? That's who he reminded me of. Yes. Upson, yes. So Upson much. Upson Pratt. Uh, that's who it reminded me of. So just imagine Upson Pratt as a judge, mm-hmm. and uh, you'll get that Ghostbusters 2 judge, you know, perfectly. Um, so after that, so basically they're in court, they're kind of fighting their case. They don't have a lawyer, so they pick Lewis. Who uh, Lewis? His, you know, he got his law degree in night school. He's mostly an accountant, and that brings back, uh, you know, Lewis Tully. So, so that's a fun little throwback to the first one here. Um, mm-hmm. And you have him; uh, he just doesn't know what he's doing. And, and no. when they bring up, like, oh, you know, how are we going to win this this court case? And you know, <laughs> a judicial restrangement order. That blue thing you gave to her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it's hilarious like i think that honestly as a kid i used to rewind that scene over and over and over again like it just landed so perfectly um and you also get some some like laurel and hardy three stooges type humor too because when um 
when they're doing the whole court scene and the judge is just kind of screaming and like saying, oh, you guys are guilty of this. The the slime that they have in their containment in the in the evidence area um, bursts. And that's what brings out the Scolari brothers, because they were the ghosts of the negative energy in that courtroom. Because I judge- just love that effect. It's really well shot. It's so simple. Oh, it is. So, you know, that judge is 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 lying or, you know, that judge is just pure angry, too, because he's like, oh, I know who those ghosts are. It's like, yeah, they're cartoony caricatures, but it's like, oh, they're the Scolari brothers. I gave him the chair. It's like, well, good for you, asshole. I hope you're, you know, living on those uh, percussions now. Uh, but <laughs> um, well, actually, going back to the Scolari brothers, the original yeah. designs for those puppets was like much more electric in nature. And I really love that there's a tangible element to it. Like the electric gremlin from the new batch mm-hmm. wouldn't work for this. Like I mm-hmm. really love that there's that fleshy bit of like realism. And also even like the hue reminds me of the librarian from the first one. So mm. it's familiar, the but it's eyes. clearly like a better version of it. Yeah. I love the eyes so much, just the glowing of the eyes. And th- those have kind of the Vigo, uh, or not Vigo, um, Janos, Janos. Janos, when he mm-hmm. turns on yep. his eyes in the hallway. Um, so, yeah, so we get the court scene. I'll, I'll run this up a little faster here. So we get the court scene. Uh, a ghost-busting fight ensues. And one thing I'd like to say, too, is Winston is kind of in and out of this scene because he's in the court. Yeah, he comes and he leaves, right? Yeah. He comes and he leaves, and it's just like, well, you know, if you see ghosts, wouldn't Winston kind of jump on and grab a proton pack? Unless there was only three proton packs, I don't know. You know, like I said, I didn't write the movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's yeah. a good. That's a good. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, he's kind of in and out. Um, so uh, you know, I wish I wish he was in the scene, but uh, you got a ghost busting scene where everyone's in suits and they're not in their ghost busting pack. Uh, they end up recreating kind of the scene of the first one where it's like they prove themselves because they capture the Scolari brothers after destroying it to pretty much nothing and it's the easiest ending of a court case ever uh you know it's like we don't want our us exposing ourselves with our judicial uh, restraining order and uh, the judge just says okay case dismissed man wouldn't courts be so much simpler that way less less court i've never seen that in my years of being an attorney lewis is just so excited that he won a case He's like screaming. And he becomes the Ghostbusters accountant later on, too. So we get the scene where they capture the And pest control, if you see the deleted scene. Oh, yes, and pest control. So we end up, uh, the the Ghostbusters prove themselves. They capture the Scolari brothers in their trap. Um, And then it goes into another montage like the first one. So you get the montage of them capturing ghosts. Um, There's one in this weird crystal store, which I always thought was kind of reminiscent to the Sega Genesis Ghostbusters game uh, with the floating uh, teacups and floating Mm -hmm. uh, paraphernalia like like. Uh, I don't know. They use this weird ghost trap that's never explained or used later on, where it kind of shoots like a laser around and then everything yeah. kind of falls down. Um, so that's a cool one. And they catch a jogging ghost in the montage. And um, yeah, so after that, they kind of built themselves up. They have the Ghostbusters 2 logo on their firehouse. <laughs> Janine is back. And like I mentioned before, she has her um, ghost trap earrings made out of a uh, shrinky dink. <laughs> I'm just glad there's no awkward blowjob in this montage. No, there's no awkward blowjob, but but uh, man, Janine is just like she's like, hurry up! I need a kid. I'm I'm 34 years old. Um, oh my god! Yeah, she's really up there. She's really sexualizing this one. But you know, hey, mm-hmm. she's the one pushing it there. But um, so yeah, we they end up going back in business. Then you get uh, Janos, who becomes uh, possessed before he gets possessed by Vigo. <laughs> um, before he gets possessed, Vigo comes to life in the painting, and before he even says anything, he's like, "Oh, command me, Lord, command me!" He's like, "You're not even fucking possessed. Like you have nothing better to do." <laughs> uh, yes, painting daddy. 
Yeah, so he was just he was he was hot and wet for uh, for for Daddy Vigo since the beginning. <laughs> what I love is like it's it's clearly delivered as absurdist behavior. But if you've ever been to like a Baptist church, this is so accepted. And I love anything that can turn a lens and be like, okay, well, you accept this as normal, but it is not normal. Uh, I think that's actually one of the really clever parts of his presentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the thing is, too, um, he reminded me, and he played a part later on, um, uh, Janos kind of reminded me of Renfeld from Dracula, because he kind of becomes yes. Dracula's assistant. Oh, yeah. Wait, Dracula dead true. and loving it? Yeah. Because he is Oh, oh that's Renfeld. right. Yes. He is. Yeah, so he, he kind of becomes Vigo's assistant in the Dracula way. And uh, he realizes, too, he's like, I need a child to be born in this in this new century. Child, yes. A child? And then he just gets electrocuted by Vigo. And Vigo somehow possesses him. And, and what comes to my mind is, like, why couldn't Vigo possess anyone else? Like, why does he have to be born into a child? I don't know. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so he goes in that. And then uh, Vigo is now inside of Janos. Sorry, now my brain is thinking of being John Malkovich, and I just am stuck. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> uh, s- same difference. Same difference. But yeah, so I guess Peter McNichol, he really made a career off of playing Renfeld-type characters. Because he, you could say he is a Renfeld-type character for Mr. Bean as well. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so then you get this really creepy and awkward scene. After, during the blackout, too, uh, you get Janos... He goes to Dana's apartment when the power's out. I guess this was before the courtroom scene. Um, so I'm jumping a little bit here. But yeah, you get Janos coming in saying, Hi, do you need any help? Do you want me to come in? Uh, you'll need any company? You know. Yeah, Dana being the strong woman, she's like, No, thank you. No. And uh, he's just kind of turned off by that. And then he goes on and he, he turns his eyeballs on and he could somehow see like in the dark light. For some reason, I don't know. It just it brings me back to the the cockroach segment in Creep Show. Like I always kind of thought those things were uh, together in this because you lose the power as well too. Mm. Yeah. So so going on down the film. So basically, we get uh, the Ghostbusters back to doing their thing. They find the River of Slime. And they realize they can control the slime uh, depending on their moods. <laughs> you get Winston back in again. I love how Winston's in this scene too because you get all that camaraderie with the Ghostbusters. Oh, but this is okay. I don't. I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is where we get like our our Dan Aykroyd like blowjob scene when like it was the Egon that admits that he mm-hmm. made love yeah. to the slime. <laughs> oh my god! I don't know if it was love. I think he was hate fucking it. He was clearly <laughs> doing science. He was choking the shit out of that slime. Oh my god. Well, don't get me too mad because I still have some slime in my urethra right now. Just, I just. just... <laughs> Just spitting in it. Oh, yeah, God. he's like these slime blowers. Uh, these are made from real life. You know how these go. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like here's the thing. Like, uh, okay, I don't mean to. Here's another quip I wrote in here. Why didn't they? Uh, why didn't they go into like the marijuana type business? You know how much money they could have made from positively charged slime? Just have people smoking it, or just people their bodies, and just makes them in a good mood. Just I'm into it. it out of my body. <laughs> and it's like, oh no, I'm gonna take a hot bath and rub this good positive mood mood slime all over me. Aww. Yeah, that would have killed the marijuana industry. <laughs> <laughs> With how people obsess over CBD, like PCS would be great. Positively charged slime, of course. Charged slime. Positively charged Aww. slime. Mm. So you get the dancing toaster scene, which I think should be a uh, a, a retro action figure in itself, because one of my favorite cartoons is Brave Little Toaster. So you get a dance. <laughs> that's a scary film too. Yum. Oh my god, that's terrifying! Oh, it's, oh. it's horrifying. So that's a horror movie. A fucking clown. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, later on, you get the, you realize they're having sex with the slime, and they're they're 
saying positive, nurturing things to it. And they play, you know, that song that comes on during the, the Statue of Liberty scene. Higher and higher. Higher and higher. Yeah, positively charge the slime. So they end up doing that and they say, like, okay, this ch- the slime can be changed. And then they go in and uh, Dana comes. I'm, I'm cutting a little bit here, but um, Dana goes in and says, I think there's something evil with this painting here. You know, it keeps staring at me and winking at me. And then she goes to her apartment and then that pink slime from underneath the city comes into her bathtub and it's very reminiscent like shivers kind like of. shivers yes and and the blob remake came out in 88 so you know this is fresh off like oh you touch that slime it'll melt your skin off bro yeah um, that was a solid remake ah, solid so remake uh, we, that's that. we yeah. talk about yeah mm-hmm. so yeah. this bathtub kind of comes alive and tries to eat dana and the baby which is fucking terrifying for a movie that's supposed to be watered down for kids mm-hmm. just think about that you know kids are i know, you know toddlers and stuff they're like oh i want to go take a bath and they have like that pink mr bubble uh stuff in there that stuff looked like mr yeah. bubble so it's like imagine the kids are like i don't want to go in there that's gonna that's gonna eat yeah i yeah. i lived that like and the craziest thing is all the scariest stuff like that were, were the reshoots. Like, the reshoots made this movie so dark. Yeah, this is a very dark movie. Even though it's more brightly lit than the first, it's much creepier, in my opinion. The reverse of what happens to Snyder Cut, right? Because the original was very, it was dialed down, it was calmed down, it was made mainstream, whereas this started off a lot more mainstream and it ends up actually having some meat on the bone, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One thing too. So as after you get the whole thing, Dana ends up going to um, Bankman's apartment saying like, Oh, my bathroom tried to eat me and, and Oscar. And I don't know what it could be. So they end up going back to his apartment. Then you get the whole love rekindling of, of Bankman and Dana, which I find <laughs> kind of cringeworthy. I mean, it's like, come on, they're trying to recapture the first one, but, but Bill Murray's not giving his all. They're just kind of phoning in their lines. And I'll be honest, like those are the weakest scenes for me. And that's what makes Ghostbusters 2 seem a little longer than the first one. Because mm. you don't get that same kind of chemistry. Well, yeah. So going to that, Sigourney Weaver even mentioned in pre-production stuff that she had basically asked what their arc was to Bill Murray. Like, what, what was our character's arc? What happened in between? Mm-hmm. And he mocked her about it for days after that. Our arc. I'm working on the arc. And it just shows like, here is somebody who's trying. And you can see her in those scenes. I could see how people would easily think that she's just kind of phoning it in or seeming downplayed. But I think that she's actually just playing levels and she's playing like she's disappointed and she's playing like she's still kind of wounded by the situation. And he's just being smarmy as fuck. Yeah, I can't see why she would fall in love with him again. Even, you know, it reminds me of like Speed with Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves. I'm like, why do you guys like each other? Just because you like looking at each other? But like with this, like he ain't even nice to look at. Michael Keaton bonding. would have been way more fun to sit on a face. <laughs> she, leaves, she leaves him in part two, and then she's with Jason Patrick. So, cruise control. I love that movie. Sorry. Anyways, let's continue. But yeah, no, I feel bad for I feel bad for Dana because Bill Murray's character is such a shithead. Like, no, he Honey, does. He comes in there with a shit eating grin. You don't need him. He doesn't. He's very selfish. Uh, he does have a decent place, though. I will say that because I know Janine mentions that later. And I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty good place. Like, I would enjoy living there if it was New York City. Yeah, the factory windows are great. Yeah, he has like the open pizza box stuff with like the half eaten pizza on the counter <laughs> and everything. And you know what I mean? Like, it's, and he sleeps in that fucking coat. That's why I said, like, the man, this place must smell like roast beef. But 
yeah, I just I don't find Bill Murray attractive in the slightest. Like it's like who the f- I'm, that's that's something else there. Yeah, no. so so basically they end up going back to his apartment. She ends up staying there, and they go and the other guys explore the Dana's apartment. They say, oh, we found some residue of the pink slime, and then they go back and they're like, okay, well this all leads to you know the museum. So they go back and in one of my favorite scenes too, they go back to the museum to take pictures of Vigo. And that painting, and then you get that uh, the security guard in the front. He meets he meets Bill Murray, and he's like, "Oh, hey, you know, uh, uh, Doctor Venkman, I'm a big fan of your show. You know, you're my second favorite show." He's like, "Oh, what's the first one? Bassmasters." Bassmasters. <laughs> yeah, I know Bassmasters. Yeah, I know the Bassmasters. It kind of puts Venkman in his place because it's like you know you're known for these public access shows that you know your, your ratings are behind golf and Bassmasters. So you know where does that put you? Touch of humility. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah, you get you end up getting to the place. All four guys are there. Like I say, all four. So the camaraderie is much more impactful on this. And uh, you get Winston, uh, you get Winston kind of taking Janos over to the side, and he's like, "Thank you, thank you, Winston." And Janos is like, "Why is you came? Why, why are you came? Why are you came?" Dr. Wankman. And then you get uh, basically Vankman. And I think the one of the strongest things too, Vankman and Janos together. Like there's just it's like this this height thing, and you get the line of like, "Oh, where are you from?" The upper west side. Yeah. And then when Vankman is meeting Yano, she like kind of shakes his hand, and then Vankman kind of like like wipes it off. <laughs> oh man, but yeah, Vank or Yano needs his own film. Fuck. Yeah. So you end up going to that, and there's there's some scenes in here where it cuts. Um, they they do cut some scenes where where uh, basically Dan Aykroyd is possessed by Vigo, or he's just kind of like under his spell a lot. Yeah. So you get some of that, uh, and then we go back, and you realize, like, oh, these pictures we took, uh, you know, man, these are this is the river of slime, you know, that's the stuff we've seen underground. And another scary scene too for a movie that's supposed to be watered down is the fucking scene where they have the photos in the red room, and then it uh, ends up catching on and fire. And they turn on fire. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a reshoot as well. Yep. Yeah, that's a scary scene a for, a, for a kid, man. And, yeah. And the thing is, Vigo's scary. And they can't yeah. get out. Those pictures, my God, man. But then Ernie Hudson, like a motherfucker with that uh, fire extinguisher, just saving the day. Oh, yeah, he breaks the door down and he saves Fuck the yeah. day. Justice for Ernie. You know what I mean? Like, I, I prefer, honestly, the ghost kind of creepy music from the first one. But, you know, they're cartoon characters now. They're they're a pop culture icon, so that we got to make it hero-ish yeah. sounding. So you get that and they realize it's like, okay, shit. Well, Vigo is, is pulling all this kinetic energy, this negative energy of slime underneath the city. And uh, so they go and uh, basically tell the mayor and, and the mayor thinks they're crazy. And then you get that not Walter Peck character who basically institutionalizes them saying like, oh, you know, you can't be doing this right now because, you know, our mayor's up for reelection. Uh, and we don't want you to ruin that. And then Bankman goes and says, you know, half of us voted for you, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> half of us. Yeah. Was it voted almost, you. almost half of us or something? Uh, yeah. Almost, almost half of us. One yeah. Of them. Yeah. And uh, so we end up going to the scene where they get institutionalized. And then you also get a uh, in, in mix between their Janosch somehow becomes a ghost nanny and captures Oscar, which is another terrifying scene for parents. Because imagine your baby walking out of a New York City building and, and hanging over the side of a cliff. Like, that's fucking scary. Like, just imagine, like, it's horrifying. I saw real footage of a kid from Spain doing that, going out one window around and then in the patio window as a, like a goof, maybe the age of my daughter. Terrifying. 
Oh yeah, no, oh. I can just imagine. And, and 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 Dana plays it off pretty well. She's like, "No, Oscar, come here." But I mean, man, that's stuff you'd see on Hood site or you know those those gore websites. Like, don't don't put a baby on the edge. Oh my god. Yeah. So Janosch ends up capturing baby Oscar and taking him to the museum because it's almost New Year's, and uh, at the stroke of midnight, that's when Vigo will encapture the soul of a baby and be born. The, the Ghostbusters end up getting released. The mayor gets pissed off at, at non-Walter Peck. Hey goons, this is your favorite foul-fucking-mouthed robot, Cyberslash1000. You might remember that I host the Hidden Tracks segment after the show. Well, apparently I do corrections now too. These nimrods forgot to mention that Eugene Levy was in a deleted scene as Louis Tully's cousin Sherman, who breaks them out of the psych ward. I really want to see that. Just like I want to see your butt. Anyways... Back to the fleshy idiots. So they end up going to the museum. They can't break in because it's, it's the jello mold. All the stuff is has enclosed the museum. And you get another cool montage, basically similar to the magic scene in the first film. But in this one, you have a much more memorable scene because honestly, what stuck with me all the time was that fucking mink coat that comes to life on that. Oh, yeah. It's a great effect. <laughs> yeah, it's a great montage. That was actually originally meant for the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's and honestly, too, like you think it's like, oh, was that from the first movie, or the second movie? But no, it's that the mink coat. Also, the mink coat scene is right outside the uh, the Biltmore or the Sedgwick the hotel from the first one. See, that's why I get confused between the two sometimes in those montage scenes. Mm-hmm. So we get the slime coming out. We get another montage. All the ghosts are coming out. But but this one, they have a reason. The first one, you know, they were all kind of coming out as a side effect from gozers coming. This one, they're coming out because of all the negative energy from the slime and, you know, just everyone being so negative. And, and mm-hmm. you know, which I think works in its, its honor because uh, you know, that's a better thing. You know, people are always have negative energy and you might as well have a ghost come out depending on the, the area that uh, that negative energy is enforced. So and it's like convergent evolution, right? Like they're not mutually exclusive. Ghosts don't just appear because of one thing. And so I kind of like that. It's the same effect, but a different reason. So yeah, I mean, we're making fun of the Mad Libs nature of it. And like the, the structure is the same, but the method behind it is different. I mean, at least they tried. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, too, I just wish they explained more. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, Dana, you are, you know, just this magnet for for these bad spirits but they don't they 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 had it but they cut that fucking scene so yeah so basically all the stuff goes to the museum they can't penetrate it with their proton packs so what do the ghostbusters do well they go ahead and get their positively charged slime and they go to a a symbol of uh freedom and uh you know good energy so they go to the statue of liberty They end up sliming it with their positively charged slime and controlling it with a Nintendo. The advantage. The advantage, yep. yeah. I had one of those, fed. and I would sit there and pretend that I was piloting the Statue of Liberty whenever I'd watch this movie. Hell yeah, bro. I wonder if Nintendo paid, Nintendo probably paid a good chunk of that in there to get that advertising in. That's well, like the I mean, power... They made a lot off those licensed video games, let me tell you. That Activision. Mm, yeah. Mm. That was like the Freddy's Dead. They had the, there's the power glove. Yeah. It's so bad. It's the worst. Terrible, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, it's okay. So the Statue of Liberty is our replacement for Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. And can we can we just talk about these mini Stay Puffs now that just dropped today? Stay Puffs. You liked Baby Yoda? Well, fuck, you're going to love uh, Baby yeah. Stay Puff. And here's the oh. thing, too. I know, Adam, uh, you were excited for it. I was not excited for Ghostbusters Afterlife, but I just saw that that little clip that was leaked. I'm all for it now. They got the music down. Uh, it's Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd, man. He's the right kind of humor 
for the material and i think he's really going to do a lot for this series i think we're going to be back in the good graces of what we should have had years ago you know what i want uh-huh. you know there's a lot of speculation that this is a dream sequence because there's nobody else who you can see in the shot what would make me happy if this isn't gozer if this isn't anything if and, and without being overly poetic about it but like if this is just a physical manifestation of egon you know like of somebody who's died maybe bill murray dies in this if it's the embodiment of these guys not wanting to be forgotten i think there's something very interesting about that and I wonder if they will be creative enough to do something more like that, as opposed to there just being, oh, it's Gozer, uh, it's Gozer's kid, uh, it's you know, Gozer's fucking I've read, cousin. I've read some scripts, and if it's true, what I read, I, as a fan of the first one, as a fan of all of the content, the sequel, the game, how they all tie together, I, I would be very happy. Honestly. Why are you reading scripts of the movie that's about to this come out? This motherfucker watches everything. He ruins have everything. Have you seen my fucking novels? Oh. God damn. Oh my it's god. My reading thing. scripts and shit, but you won't watch a stupid little clip from Mortal Kombat over here. Get the fuck out. Come on. Girl. Don't be reading any scripts. They could be like okay. decoy scripts. That Taking was over. pandemic That was a good day. Oh, yeah. They defeat Vigo the Carpathian in yeah. one of the most anticlimactic scenes of all time. That's it why is, I'm going to yeah. breeze over it because they breeze over it. They try to have a sentimental moment with Bill Murray with the kid. Does not work with me. Every time yeah. I'm just like, I think I might rewatch the Scolari Brothers scene again. Mm-hmm. And Louis Tully gets to look great. That's the other movie. The exact antithesis of him being carted off in the first one. And that's the movie. I have to ask you guys. I was thinking about this. How do you rank this in terms of other sequels of that era, the late 80s, early 90s? Talking films like Teen Wolf, The Fly, Bill and Ted, Caddyshack, Creepshow, Indiana Jones, Gremlins, Back to the Future, Wayne's World. Is it too on brand? Is it not enough? Does it ver- derivate to the point where you end up on a bogus adventure? Let us know at slasherspot at gmail.com. Now I have to ask each of you, classic, trashic, or tragic, how do we feel it? I'm going classic still. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like for me, it's a classic. I really love this film, and this is one that I've watched a lot as a kid. It's it's up Same. there with RoboCop two. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like you can't compare the two, but two is just as good. You get that. It, it's still fun. Well, we mentioned that on the last episode. It's a lot more kiddie in ways, but it's also way more severe. Like the idea that he like yeah. you're crushing a man's brain, and you're talking about kids having drug dependencies. Like there's a lot of darkness there, but you could also see how easily people would say, "Oh, it's watered down. It's a kids' movie now." Yeah, but there's nothing to be mad at in it honestly no it's a classic and honest well speaking for jake and doug like since we were born at the tail end of the 80s or 90s for some of us here we're probably going to be exposed to this one more because it came out at the time and it was probably like out for rent like not everybody had a vcr and then i remember uh at one point when we got the rewinder it was like the biggest thing like oh my god i have a rewinder now this is so great so you know things were not as accessible as they are now so we probably would have had more access to this one and that's why I remember this one more than I do the first one, if we're talking about like growing up. But I enjoy yeah. the first one better. This one I do love. I have no problems with it. And I, I actually don't mind the whole Fankman Dana thing. I think it's cute. So whatever. I think it'd be disingenuous for us to have done an entire month of trauma and not like this movie. I mean, when mm-hmm. you think yeah. about the, the mastery of craft that goes into it, I'm sorry, Return to Newcomb High ain't there. There's a lot <laughs> to be said about it. Like, even if this is a cash grab. 
it's a good cash grab. It's yeah. decent. And and honestly, think of the pressures that they had because Columbia was literally the, the memo was make money, money, make money, money. Hey, they did not yeah. want an artistic piece. They just fired a guy for trying to be an artist. So sure, maybe now we might get that, but that's not where they were at then. And they just wouldn't have had the tools. There's no way they would get the money to make that movie. And they couldn't make that movie on their own because it's all owned by Columbia slash Coca-Cola at the time. You know what? It's a toy commercial, but it's a great toy commercial. It got everyone back. It got the team back together. It's it's enjoyable. And I, I hope it finds new light. Yeah, you can't blame that. That was a lot of 80s movies, though. It wasn't just that one. There were a lot of 80s yeah. movies at that time that did the same thing. So I that, think it was, a, it was a product of its time as well. So That's all the 80s was. It was just toy commercial TV shows and cocaine. That's, that's pretty much the 80s. So on the topic of consumerism mm -hmm. there's this thing called redbubble.com and you can go to slasherspod.redbubble.com and you can engage in rampant consumerism and adorn yourself in the vestiges of one slashers podcast you can also patronize using money or a free service on a 30 dollars stick you plug into whatever you can watch doug at friday night action every friday night on b movie tv you could patronize Adam, buy his work, commission him, get him up to snuff, get that shoulder working again with some drawing and some skills at, at otherboy underscore art. You can find Adrian at pathologically ADE, Doug at Doug Bizarro. Me, I have gotten back into my Gacy Jones account. Thank you very but fucking much. Let us know how you feel about Ghostbusters 2, slasherspot at gmail.com. Reach out to us, engage with us. We have two more weeks of Ghostbusters coverage, and then we have the Patreon bonus episode. We will be viewing the Ghostbusters with the guys and the ape, which is going to be bananas. Boom! I did it. I saved a dad joke that has been back in my mind forever. Goodbye and good die. Cyber slash 1000 here to rectify a big problem. These idiots hosting the show did not properly rant about how good the song, On Our Own, by Bobby Brown is. Say what you will about him as a person, but at least Huey Lewis didn't sue him. On the topic of music, we have another hidden track for you. This week's song is Certain Doom off of the album Legends of the Power Heart, Part 2, by Rum. That is spelled H-R-O-M, which reminds me of a Yiddish version of Conan the Barbarian's God. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, wherever. Oh weird, I have gotten to the end of this intro and haven't said anything obscene. Ah. Uh, felching. Lots of felching. <laughs>